0: to the City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at Hills.org This morning, we're starting a new series through the book of Ephesians. And so if you're new to City on a Hill, this is a great Sunday to start with us because we are uh, gonna be uh, looking at Ephesians for several months and really digging in. And and really the reason it's a good Sunday to start is we tend and we try to go through books of the Bible verse by verse. There are times like this summer where we looked at the Apostles' Creed and took a little bit more of of a different approach, more of a systematic approach to the scriptures. But we tend to go through books of the Bible verse by verse because we believe that these words us. We believe this God's word is living and active, uh, that it, it shapes us into who God wants us to be, that it convicts us and that we submit ourselves to it. And part of the reason that we go verse by verse is we can't skip the hard stuff. I mean, if it was just up to me or just up to you, we were just like, okay, well, I'm, I'm gonna skip that one part of scripture because it's, it's a harder truth. And even this morning, we're diving right into the deep end. We're not wading into the water. We're getting into a deep theological truth this morning. Uh, but I also believe it's important to where we are as a church. Today is the one year anniversary of us beginning to gather together, which is super exciting. Yes, like praise God. And, and if there has been a testament to God's sustaining grace on a church, it has been the last year, right? Like, let me give you a picture of what a year ago looked like this Sunday. We gathered together. It was a, it was a great time. It was the, the, you know, the fruition of a lot of prayer and effort and, 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 and um, you know, people have been giving and pouring into our community. We're, we're praying for what God would do. And uh, we, we got together. We couldn't sing we had to film Matt Waldrop on a guitar in the office and show the video and all just kind of stare at it. So I encourage people to like hum, like raise your hands. And you know I tried to like really kind of church it up and say, okay, you know, like really think about your receiving God's grace in this. But we all knew it was, it was, it was not as good as being able to sing together and hear each other's voices. Uh, we've seen a lot of new faces over the last year. We've sent some people who, who, who have who've moved to other places. God has been so faithful to us to sustain us. And I think the, the letter to the Ephesian church is important because It is a letter to a specific congregation. And this congregation really provides a roadmap for what God does when the gospel really gets people's hearts. This is a vision for the type of church that has been really wrecked by the gospel, reshaped by the gospel, reoriented by the gospel. So I wanna ask you over the next several months to really pray for several, several things. Pray for how God will shape City on a Hill through the book of Ephesians. Who, what kind of church does God want us to be? Pray for, for the mission that God has given us in, in our city, here in Boston, here near Forest Hills, and also pray personally, what is the step that God is ta- calling me to take in following Him? Now who wrote uh, the book of uh, or the letter to the ephesians and, and um, and who is who really shapes and frames what this letter is about and what, and what it's gonna be for us. Um, we see in the very first verse, we see that the letter was written by Paul. The way that Roman letters were written is they would, it would be the, the, uh, the author of the letter and then the recipients of the letter would be mentioned. So Paul mentions himself and he talks about the people he's sending it to. And so Paul, it says, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul was an apostle. The word apostle literally means sent one. And the original uh, kind of syntax of the language, um, the original meaning of that word was actually describing a ship that would take cargo from one port to another. So Paul is, is being sent, and it's important to know who he's being sent by, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That it is Jesus who has sent him as a sent one, as an apostle to extend the gospel and to plant churches. So a biblical apostle, when we think about what this looks like, is a special office in the Bible, a special group of people that God set apart. And we see the qualifications through Scripture are that they experienced the earthly ministry of Jesus. They either walked with him in his earthly ministry or in Paul's case, he saw the resurrected Christ when his eyes were opened to the gospel. Um, they saw him resurrected. They were called by him and sent by him. And so these, this special group of apostles, what they would do is they would perform miracles. Um, they would lay hands on people and they would be healed. Uh, and more, most importantly for us is that they would speak and write authoritatively. What they said had the same weight that the prophets of the Old Testament had, the same weight that Jesus had he had given to them. And so that's why we say today there are no modern day apostles and so the term apostle, it was an, a special office. Now, there is an apostolic gifting that we're going to get into here in a couple of months when we get to Ephesians chapter four. But this is a special group of people, and Paul is one of them. And we see that he is set apart as an apostle by Jesus by the will of God. He's called by God, he's sent by God because he was saved by God. We need to understand who Paul was before he was an apostle. Paul was a persecutor of the Christian church. He was a murderer. In fact, many believe that in 2 Corinthians, the uh, the, the Macedonian call, like as he was calling people to to give money, to, to send it to Jerusalem, was actually to take care of the widows that he widowed. This is the last guy that you imagine being the person entrusted with extending the hope of Jesus to the world. And he tells his story in 1 Corinthians 15, verses nine through 11. He talks about how unlikely it was that Paul was the guy to be entrusted here. It says, for I am the least of all of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul's understanding of the grace of God shaped his love for the church. Because he's not writing this letter to a bunch of people and saying, you know what, you need to be better. You need to live up to my standard. Look at me, I'm an apostle. No, he's a recipient of undeserved grace, writing to people who he wants to receive and fully experience undeserved grace. We see this as he writes this to the recipients. It says at the end of verse one, "To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus." The saints are not a special class of people. This is not like the the uh, the, the Navy Seals of Christian. Uh, this is this is not uh, you know people who are really good at reading the Bible or or who are good at keeping the rules. We see that these are those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So, in other words, if you are a Christian, you are a saint. You're simultaneously a saint and a sinner. This is the mystery of the gospel, that we are sinful, but God considers us holy. All who trust him. And what this means for us is that every person at the church of Ephesus who read this letter, these words applied. It applied that all of us are undeserving, but all who trust God will receive all that God wants to give them. So they are God's church, but we also see this little middle phrase in there that really kind of modifies what he's saying. He's saying here that this is a church a people called out in the city of Ephesus. And it's really important that we don't skip over that detail that they are in this city. Ephesus was a port city in modern day Turkey. It was a large influential commercial center um, and it was extremely superstitious and religious extremely superstitious. The old legend of how the city of Ephesus was founded is that the people got together and they couldn't decide where to put the city. It's kind of like people getting together and going, where do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? I don't know. Like it's kind of like that. Where do we put the city? And so an oracle told them, this is the legend, um, that they would put the city wherever a boar or a fish pointed. And so one day, some fishermen, according to the legend, were, were sitting there cooking a fish. A fish and a live coal falls into the brush and outruns a boar. They run down, kill the boar, and said, yep, that's a good place to make a city. And so that's where they put the city. Extremely superstitious. This is like ancient horoscopes. Like, they were that superstitious. And this is where the pagan worship to the goddess Artemis was, resided. The temple of Artemis was there. And they referred to, to Artemis as the wife of Ephesus saw her as the protector of the city. So why is all that important? Because God is setting apart a people, as spiritual light in a place of spiritual darkness. This letter is about God's people overcoming the world, overcoming evil and showing the gospel is beautiful in a dark place. He's setting aside his church. that so They are in Ephesus, but they are also in Christ. And this gives us the vision for what God wants us to do and what happens when the gospel takes root in us and in our city, it begins to shape us and it also shapes the city around us. You see the impact that the gospel had on the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 as the people heard the word of God. They responded and they began to take all of their magic books and uh, and their pagan worship books and begin to burn them. And I'm not saying we need to start burning books in our in our age, but, but that's what they did. We're, we're going to start burning these things. And it, they took 50,000 silver coins worth of books and burned them in the middle of the city. The silversmiths actually began to go out of business because they were no longer making idols to Artemis. Ephesus gives us a vision for the renewed community that can happen in the midst of our city, a renewed people formed by the gospel. And we see several marks through the, through the, the letter to the Ephesians that we're gonna uncover over the next couple of months. We see beautiful unity and diversity. These are people unified around a common hope in Jesus. And then we see this diversity where people are reconciled to one another across boundaries and borders that no one thought could be reconciled. We see a purity in the way that they're called to live. We see a mutual and beautiful submission to one another. And we see how they were called to push back and fight darkness and evil. And so how does Paul start this beautiful vision to these people? He's writing this letter. There's no real problem in the church of Ephesus, but he says, I want you to know what you could be. And he starts this vision with a 202 word, 11 verse run-on sentence. If you, if you, if you look at this in the Greek, it is a long run-on sentence. Our, our, our grammar nerds are gonna die. Uh, because, and he does this because it's, 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 a, it's exuberant praise. He praises God because God is the one who builds the church. We see God's faithfulness to us a city and a hill over the last year. It's God who builds the church. And the first thing that Paul says is, I want you to know how blessed you are. Verse three, you have received every spiritual blessing And so for the next three weeks, we're gonna unpack some of those different spiritual blessings that we see at the beginning of Ephesians chapter one. But first, let's look at where those blessings come from and also define what those blessings are. So the first thing we see in the text today is that God is the giver of all we need. God is the one who gives us everything that we need. Verse three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul begins this letter by praising God. He praises God because he's the giver of all spiritual gifts. And he praises him by saying, blessed be the God and and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word bless here means to praise or to bless his name and not like the old Southern phrase, bless his, his or her heart, bless his name, bless him. Meaning he is worthy to be praised. God is worthy to be praised because of who he is. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God inherently deserves worship. He is the only one who is worthy. He's the only one who we can describe as truly great. And we think about right now, you know, the word goat or greatest of all time has been so, so badly abused. Oh, he's a goat, she's a goat. Well, you're, there's only one goat. You can only have one greatest of all time. Either Michael Jordan's the greatest of all time or LeBron James is the greatest of all time or Wilt Chamberlain. It can't be all three. One of them is the greatest. God is the greatest. He's the most glorious. He's the one who is the most good, who satisfies our soul. And he is the only one who is gracious. We could spend all day talking about the attributes of God and what make him worthy of being worshiped. The fact that God is holy and other above all things. The fact that he is a just God, a kind God, a loving God, a merciful God, a wrathful God, an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present God. We could praise him for his glory and for his good name. But this also flows into what he has done. What God has done flows out of who he is. And we see this in verse two, that Paul prays that they would receive grace and peace, knowing that God would give them this gift in Jesus Christ. We see that he has blessed us in Christ. And so we praise God because every good gift comes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that those can be ours. And so it, this helps us understand the meaning of what a blessing is. You know, in our culture, when, when you ask somebody how they're doing, say, hey, how you doing? You know, I'm blessed. And blessed typically means I'm having a good week. I'm fortunate. You know, I've got money. Like, I've got a good family. My job's going okay. I feel like I just, I'm enough. Everything is going to be okay. But here, the idea of blessing really flows out of the gracious kindness of the giver. And this blessing is not just any sort of blessing. It's spiritual blessing. Blessing that's that's something deeper than temporary happiness. Blessing that's that's deeper than material gain. Blessing that is better than our circumstances improving. The type of blessing we're describing here is something that our hearts truly long for. It's, it's a fulfillment of our deepest desire to be fully known and to be fully loved. And that's why our, our, our minds and our hearts are drawn towards stories that are bigger than us because they tap into something deep inside of us. I was listening to this podcast this week and they were talking about how certain things just grab us. and We have this desire to believe. And, and, and the person mentioned G.K. Chesterton and he said, G.K. G.K. Chesterton was a early 20th century um, theologian. And he said, we like astonishing tales Because they touch the nerve of the ancient instinct of astonishment. We are spiritual people. And And the guy running the podcast, he said, we are spiritual creatures looking for footholds in spiritual realities. And this resonates with Ecclesiastes, which says that we have eternity in our hearts, which means there's something inside of us that only God can fulfill. There's something inside of us that only God can satisfy. So for God to be the giver of every spiritual blessing means that he gives everything that our heart and our soul truly needs. And so because of this, he blesses us in Christ, in union with Christ. And this, is, this has been stored up for us in the heavenly places. Heaven is not really above, necessarily above the earth. It is with God himself. God meets our deepest need by giving us what our heart truly wants most, which is a relationship with him. He doesn't just give some blessings, he gives every spiritual blessing. And what this means is that we lack nothing. There's nothing we lack. God is not holding out on us, but he satisfies every desire of our soul, which means every longing that we have, whether it's for food, for sex, or for relationship, whether we're lonely, all of those things are ultimately desires for God himself. And these things have been stored up for us in heaven, which means they're secure. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, lay up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, which means they cannot be taken away because these treasures rest in a relationship with Christ. So let's look at the first couple of blessings we see here in Ephesians chapter one. The first we see is that God chose us to be in his family. God wanted us to be a part of his family. And these are the promises and the blessings of election and adoption. Election and adoption. Verse four says, even as he chose us in him. The word even as is kind of like saying, for example, he's saying you have received all of these blessings from God, every blessing you could possibly want. So let me give you a few examples. It says he chose us. Verse five goes a little further. It says he predestined us for adoption. Now, the word election or predestination—I know it's a—it can be a hot button issue for some. If you grew up in church and you've heard these words, you might go, "Whoa, uh, I don't know if I like that one." If, if you're here and you're a guest this morning, you're like, "I, I don't." Maybe, maybe you're not sure, but but for some of us, maybe we just need to better understand what the Bible means by election or predestination. We may have some objections to the idea that God chooses us and that we don't choose him. But what the Bible teaches and is very clear about is that we are sinners. That we are sinners who are bent towards sin. And we're not just sinful because we make sinful choices, but our very nature is sinful. That it's bent, that it's broken. There's something not quite right in us. And that our nature left alone to its own devices and own desires will run away from God because we want to be in control of our own lives. So what the Bible teaches is that we are so sinful that we will not choose God if given the opportunity. And this is why J.I. Packer sums up the gospel by saying the gospel is truly God saves sinners. God, the only one who is powerful and all-knowing and all-good, has to save, has to rescue someone out of a burning house and bring them to safety and the objections to the idea that God chooses us then we don't first choose him there's a few I mean the idea that this just doesn't seem fair it's not fair But the problem is is that if none will choose him and none are deserving for God to choose any is gracious Because our sin is due God's punishment and he is faithful and good to call us to himself Another objection is the idea that people who want to believe are kept out and those who don't believe get in. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says in Romans 10, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no one who's going to hell kicking and screaming, just like there's no one going to heaven kicking and screaming. But I think there are two aspects of this that we need to consider that will help us really, I think, begin to grasp this idea of election or predestination. And it's our perspective And it's also our hearts. We have to understand that what we are perceiving is is an eternal experiential reality. We're experiencing an eternal reality of the way that God sees the world. And so Charles Spurgeon, who's a late 19th century uh, pastor and theologian in Britain, he said, imagine this. He said, imagine that you're walking through a gate or we can imagine that you're walking through the back door, right? And so you're walking through the back door and above the door, it says, whosoever may come. And so that's what we see on this side of eternity. We see whosoever may come. And that is very clear. The Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But the moment you walk into eternity and turn around and look at the backside of the door, it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. How we're experiencing and understanding a spiritual reality. And here's the reality. It's a mystery. Like, I mean, this is a mystery. I, I don't understand how God is sovereign and how we're responsible to choose in faith. I, I don't understand all the inner workings of this. I just know the Bible says both are true. And I submit myself to that in humility. But the other part of this is, is our hearts and our ability to, to understand, our ability to be able to, um, to, be able to, to grasp this. The Bible doesn't say that we don't have a will, but our will will freely choose to follow into our sin because the problem is our hearts. Our problem is our hearts. Our hearts are spiritually blind. Our hearts are spiritually dead. So imagine this. And part of it is that we, we will choose what we believe is more worthy. So for example, if I were to like, you know, hold up my cell phone, right? I would say, okay, you can either have my cell phone or you can have, you know, this, this covenant hymnal. I think most of us will go, you know, I think I'm going to take the cell phone. I'm not, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm walking around singing hymns in the house. I don't know, but I probably would take the cell phone. But if I had my credit card sitting right here at hymn number 715 on the inside where you couldn't see it, if you knew it was in there, you would probably choose this, right? Because my, my credit card is hopefully uh, more valuable than, than my cell phone. It's the very same way because we are blinded to the beauty and the worth of Jesus. And until our eyes are open to the reality of the beauty of the gospel, we will not believe because the blind can't make themselves see. The dead don't come back to life on their own. It is God who acts on our behalf. And when we get this and we understand this, our soul is filled with gratitude. Spurgeon again says election sets the soul on fire with enthusiastic delight in God. Because what we see is that this is purely about God's grace. That it's not about how good you can be. It's not about your record, but it's about the fact that he chose you before the foundation of the world. In other words, before you ever did anything good or bad. Before you even thought a thought, you were in the mind of a sovereign God, and this was done according to his good and perfect will. See, God choosing us boils down to this. Do we believe God is in control? Do we believe he's in control of everything? Do we believe that nothing surprises him, that all things are good according to his good and trustworthy will? And the reality is, is our lives bear it out, because what, what are we doing when we pray? We're trusting that God's in control. When we pray for our friends to come to faith in Jesus, we don't pray, you know, I hope they make the right choice. I hope that they get the right information. We say, no, God, please reveal yourself to them. Help them believe, save them. And in this, we see the care and the intention of God. Before the foundation of the world, according to his will, that God looked down through eternity and he said, I want that person to be a part of my family. Because Christianity is the one religion and the one worldview where you do not have to be the best to win. If you really break it down, every other worldview in religion says if you, you have to be the brightest and the best and the most beautiful, whether this is evolution, whether this is you know, a, a progressive understanding of the world that we just need to continue to get better and then we just need to continue to be more loving and more kind. If we could just, if we just do those things, if, if our desires are ultimate, it's, it really comes down to how beautiful and desirable we are. If it's, if it's the American dream, it's how much I can achieve. And all of those are slanted toward, you need to be enough. But the gospel and the fact that God chose us says that, no, it has nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with his grace. And we see that God invites the lowly in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, when we have nothing to boast about, we can only boast in God because we didn't earn it. We did nothing to to deserve it. But how do we receive it? Because we were chosen in him. In who? Jesus. That when you trust Jesus, you receive his perfect life. That his death becomes yours and his resurrection brings you to new life. So that, as the scriptures say here in verse four, that you would be blameless, holy and blameless before him. This is not make yourself holy and blameless so you can come to him, but he saves you so that you can be holy and blameless before him. And what this represents is a promise. Romans 8, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified or made right with God. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, which means we are free of the presence of sin. The promise that he will complete the work and that Jesus will present this to God the Father so that Jesus gets glory it's like when my kids, when they, my kids all the time are constantly bringing me art or, or, or something they've written, they say, dad, I want you to look at this. Dad, will you look at that? Dad, will you look at this? And, I have a, so I have a, and I'm much more sentimental than my wife. I have a stack inside my nightstand of like things like this. And I'm like, I'm sure this will be valuable one day. And I've I got, you know, a, a finger painting from when they were two. I mean, I'm just very sentimental. And when I rejoice in that, I say, hey, you did a great job. Am I really rejoicing in the artwork or am I rejoicing in the artist? I'm rejoicing in my kids. In the same way, when Jesus presents us as holy and blameless, God is rejoicing in Christ's workmanship and it gives him glory. That's what God gets out of it. But here's what we get out of it. We get adoption. Verse five, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, he predecided to make us his own. Now, in, in, in the Greek, that phrase, adoption to himself as sons, is actually one word. And it's to be understood as a legal adoption. And, and as you're being brought into this, it means that you are given the same responsibilities and the same rights as a natural born son. And so this is, again, this is not being sexist. In fact, actually women are invited into this. This is all about inheritance language. What this means is that we are called the sons and the daughters of God through adoption. And here's what adoption through Christ to God the Father gives us. We get an inheritance. Through Jesus, we get a new dad. So maybe for you, maybe the idea of God as a father is scary. That was a big barrier for me when I was coming to faith. Um, Maybe God doesn't feel safe. Adoption in Christ means that you get to come to God as a safe place where you're loved and cherished. It means that you get access we have access in a way as a child that we would not otherwise. Imagine that you're, uh, you're in Washington, D.C. and you're at the White House and you're standing at the gates and you see President Biden walk across the front yard and you say, you know what, I'm going to hop the fence and I'm going to run in and I'm going to give Uncle Joe a hug and we're going to hang out. What's going to happen? The Secret Service are going to take you down faster than you can blink. But what if you were his son? You have access that you wouldn't otherwise have. In the same way, because we're God's children, we have access to him. We have security in him. This isn't gonna be taken away from us. And lastly, we have responsibility. If he's your dad, he gets to tell you how to live. He gets the final call. And it also means that we're responsible to each other. You're not just adopted into this family by yourself. You're adopted in with a bunch of brothers and sisters from all across different cultures together. It means we care for each other. It means we pray for each other. It means we serve each other. So this answers how we're blessed. But by God choosing us, but why did God do this? God blesses us lastly because of his love and for his glory. His love is meant to move us in love toward him and toward others. First John 4:19, we love because he first loved us. Why why did God choose to love us because he loves us? Because he is love. Verse four says, in love, he predestined us. But really the way that's worded, everything in this passage is about God's love. He chose us in love. He predestined us in love. He, he promised to make us holy in love. He adopted us into his family in love. Everything is done and driven by his love. Now, for us in English, the word love, we don't have a lot of differentiation. You know, like I love pizza, like I love my kids, like I love the Red Sox, like everything is just one big word for love. But in Greek, there were words for, for brotherly love, romantic love, uh, for duty type love. But here the word love is, is agape love, sacrificial love, the type of love that calls you to sacrifice for another person. And this is the only kind of love that can move you. And that's why stories about sacrifice and love really get to us and get our hearts. So If you read fiction, the story of Lily Potter laying her life down for her son, and and it actually says, and it mirrors the gospel, that the only thing that could break the curse of death was love. Or a real life example, on on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we think about Flight 93 as people sacrifice their own lives to, to save other people. And we're captured by these stories because they're selfless, they're giving, and they call us to give ourselves back. See, when we get this and we understand the love of God, we begin to get the gospel because we see the selflessness of Jesus. We see the giving love of Jesus, a father who sent his very own son to come and live and die for our sins in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. And here's what happens when you get that. You worship you praise God, the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us and the beloved. God choosing and saving us puts him at the center of our attention and our affection. It's like Copernicus who said that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the universe and our solar system. In the same way, our entire problem is that we're at the center of our solar system. And the problem of our sin is it positions you and me at the center saying life is about me I'm the point, I'm in control, I'm the one who's worthy of glory. But the gospel radically shifts that. That it's all about God. We see the beauty of the fact that he would love us and choose us before anything we've ever done. We see his love and we think, what glorious grace. He would choose me and save me and make me his child. He would open our eyes to see this. So how do we respond this morning? This morning, if you're a Christian, The doctrine of election is meant to give you assurance. It's not meant to scare you, but it's meant to assure you that the God who saved you will keep you saved, that he chose you and he wants you. No matter how bad your week was, no matter how much you messed up, no matter how many times you sinned this week, no matter how many times you were unfaithful, he is faithful to you. But if you've not yet taken that step, it's an invitation. It's looking at that door and saying, whoever so may come. And maybe for the first time this morning, it clicked. You're seeing the beauty of Jesus. You're seeing the glory of what God has done for you this morning. Simply let go and trust Jesus. And these blessings become yours. They become applied to your account. Let's pray.